to the Easy Peasy Podcast, where we discuss living better through permaculture, mindfulness, decentralization, freedom, flow, agorism, anarchy, and more. We'll discuss how to solve life's complex problems with simple solutions. This is Mike the Polymath coming from the Easy Peasy Workshop in Indianapolis, Indiana, the crossroads of America. Thanks for joining. shake my head when I do that because there's like that that voice of dystopia recording in progress it's like, right ah. the so machine I, the machine right well hopefully we can use the the tools of machine on, in, against itself hey everybody here we are uh, I'm Tom the Tom Lynn show as it were um I don't know um what really to call this, these, these conversations that I've been having with people. But today I have, and we've, he's been with us on other occasions, the great Mike Whistler of the Easy Peasy podcast. And also um, we might talk about this a little bit as well. The, uh, the WTF forum, which is a sort of loosely affiliated group of people uh, mm-hmm. having a similar conversations but uh, actually, I was listening uh, to uh, the WTF forum uh, last week with Mike and some other guests uh, whom you can enumerate. And amongst the themes that emerge there is uh, the suggestion of the occult and occult imaginings, perhaps playing into the mentality, the disposition, the inclination of the elite characters that, uh, they're the characters that inhabit the elite, the so-called elite stratum of society. And um, this, this constellation of questions, the occult, the magical, and the technological, right? These are all things that we that have been coming up uh, and i thought maybe you know we can have michael back on and maybe we can just sort of shoot the breeze around this it's not highly structured it's just you know we're just talking and uh, mike also i was kind enough to check out i think um the interview with james tunney and maybe also with uh guido preparata um but Mike, uh, how's it going? Good, man. Good to be here. Um, yeah, yeah. I watched those videos you sent me, and I read that essay, um, and I found it encouraging because it seems like you've been exploring kind of similar topics to me as of late. Um, I I 
enjoyed both of those interviews immensely. Uh, I couldn't help but think that both of those guys are really onto something. And um, I jotted down a few notes. So I do have a, you know, I, I might turn the tables on you. I know we're kind of on your show, but I may, well, with your permission, I may use no, this audio as well for my show. Absolutely. Um, right. Absolutely. But I've, I've got a few sort of, thoughts right after listening to those those previous chats um speaking of not knowing what to call your show i mean i would almost just say like chats with with thinking tom or something simple right <laughs> call it what it is i guess right right yeah right right but anyways i'm looking forward to chatting about it um yeah like i did not get give a whole lot of credence to the occult you know, I've watched a whole bunch of movies and, you know, never like took it too awful serious. Right. As far as the forces behind the the curtain, so to speak. And until I'll, I'll say till COVID times, right. Where it just felt like something is going on here that just isn't right. There's like clearly a, I don't know, an unforeseen or un, unseen force at play where it seems like evil has more of a grip on our our power structure than i ever really considered even though i was already like pretty much there as an anarchist i was already there before covid but it just kind of pushed me over the edge of thinking man like i think there really are like people that are influenced by evil in this world and if that's the case then there must be something on the opposite um so i'm trying well, to i mean I'm, we're just just jumping into the deep end there is yeah to, a little bit the, the little nature bit. the question of evil evil broadly human evil um you know, I, it, it's, I think, it, crucial at the, at the outset to indicate that uh, the conjecture that we're not the only game in town, that there are other elements or energies or forces or entities in, in, in pressing themselves in some way upon the reality. That conjecture does not, and I'm not saying this in virtue of you, but I had this conversation with someone else the other night. It is not to alleviate our responsibility as human beings. Actually, if anything, I think it heightens our responsibility. Um, of course, on one stand, from one standpoint, we must confess at the beginning that these conjectures are going to be resistant to strict evidencing. So just to speak from where I'm standing, there are certain actions that have transpired in history that are so unequivocally evil that whilst Human beings, human beings were instrumental in their execution. I cannot but imagine that there is something other than human involved in their conception. So specifically, 
to give a concrete example, I can point to nuclear weaponry. To me, the use of the atomic bomb, the development, the implementation of that technology is fundamentally diabolical. And uh, the full stop. There's no justifying a nuclear weapon. Mm-hmm. None. All right. The apologies which is for, are offered are, are paltry and uh, inadequate. And um, it's a, an example of where I think you see the injection of something genuinely evil into human history. And we, you know, I mean, as human beings that built the bomb, as human beings that dropped the bomb, but it just seems like a more or rather less than human reality is driving something like that. Um, And connected to that is the notion that the stage of history is a contest of moral energy and that we play a vital role in its outcome. Uh, This is, of course, not exactly a perspective which is um, going to be amenable to relay on NPR, um, but that is that that's where I stand in any event. But as you said, it was the onset of the um, situation, the the lockdowns, the masking, the injections, mm-hmm. the uh, you know abetted medical tyranny of the past three years. The deceptions involved in that, uh, which inspired in you a sense that there's something else afoot. Do you want to sort of elaborate upon that point? Yeah, I mean, it finally just kind of clicked where it's like there are, there's a spiritual battle at play in a nutshell. And um, there's a whole lot of people who, try their best to be neutral to to the spiritual battle but by virtue of neutrality end up kind of giving in to the dark in my opinion and we are kind of like jumping right into the meat of it you know i'm very interested in um the question that you had with i want to say what's his name um guido guido preparata yeah um about sort of whether or not technology is amoral or if there's sort of maybe a, a an evil aspect to it. And I, I appreciated that you interjected that like, it certainly depends. Right. Um, but it got me thinking about, you know, my favorite author personally is Edward Abbey and he wrote about what he called the Meglinum. How do you say it? Megla, megalomaniacal mega machine. It's a bit of a tongue twister. Megalomaniacal mega machine, right? Yeah, yeah. And how, you know, the battle he was fighting in this one particular book, it's called The Monkey Wrench Gang. Mm-hmm. Um, it was never against people. Like the, the heroes of the story went out of their way not to hurt people. And it was all about fighting the apparatus, the, the, <clears throat> machine right and i've always been attracted to those kind of stories just from a gut level you know like the story of the the hero against the the big system right and 
it just is starting to feel like that's sort of what's happening. Um, not sort of like pretty much entirely. You were talking about different movies and different uh, stories that sort of align with what we're going through now. And um, I feel like it can't really be understated that. Yeah. Like people sort of are at this turning point where you can either go with the program or sort of rise up against it. And me personally, I'm trying to rise up against it, you know? Yeah. And there is, um, as I recall, there's a little bit of difference between Guido and myself on that score. Uh, it might just have been really a difference of emphasis because his concern mm -hmm. was that if you put too much weight into the influence of these technologies on us, you discount the reality that we still make decisions. I think the example of which he's fond is the cell phone, which, you know, is obviously insidious, but at the end of the day, we have the capacity not to be checking our notifications. You know, you can change the settings on your phone so it's not as egregiously intrusive and so forth, right? And that's just an example. The point is that we're not completely manacled to the apparatus um, and you have to make that explicit because if you capitulate too early, then you create an excuse for passivity. Um, I suppose the point of difference between myself and uh, him on this point is that I really do think that the technological mentality is just insidious in its ability to unfold us within its logic, even when we are trying to resist it. And that's why I, I think it, it's something that needs to be given um, direct and significant attention. Um, so, you know, where 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 to where to go from there with it? You know, I don't. I really need to have read the Monkey Wrench Gang. I, I haven't yet, but I need oh man, to it. you but know, it's it's a fun. So, it's it's basically just a fun read. It's kind of an adventure novel, um, which is sort of what I went for. I I don't know if we've spoke since I put out my novel. Um, you were just releasing it, I think, the yeah, first time we yeah. spoke. Uh, but I went for a similar kind of aesthetic or uh, feel in that it's action adventure with a whole lot of sort of metaphor behind it um and you can anywho, if you want recap like the main theme of your novel well the it's very much a man against the machine kind of thing but there's a spiritual component behind it where um the the setting more or less is a post global blackout um, like a handful of years after the blackout to where people have sort of more localized energy grids and like they're rebuilding after just a massive disaster. And the, the, the main character is trying to get a more or less national podcast going for the first time since um, trying to disseminate sort of, 
useful information to people on the ground in a very divided and like fractured North America. And I don't know. Yeah. I don't want to give too much away about the story, but it's very much like the, the powers that be still exist and are still trying to assert dominance and a small group of intrepid people are rising up against it. And I think that's just a tale as old as time. And it sort of is true of our, our nature. Um, you know, so many folks will passively consent to the mega machine until it gets out of control. And then it takes effort to, to fight it back, you know, to beat it down, to at least strive for some level of balance. And, you know, technology is a huge part of it, right? Like, and it, it has been for a while, you know, a good portion of our recent history. I I've been very intrigued by Kurt Vonnegut's. Uh, I just started reading it. I'm not very far in, but um, player piano where he's, he's touching on sort of the rapid technological development of America. And this was some years ago. I think he wrote it in the, in the fifties maybe or sixties, but it takes place during sort of what he calls the early stages of the third industrial revolution, right? And it was when, you know, if the first industrial revolution was sort of mechanization and the second was sort of um, cheap energy, right? Internal combustion. And so it went from saving manpower you know muscle power to saving like routine labor you know the third in his mind would be saving the the issue of of thought work right of mental work of creative work you know the engineers the scientists they would all be replaced by you know the machine as well and i think you know people now say we're in the fourth industrial revolution but it doesn't quite line up the same as Kurt Vonnegut's image. Um, I don't know the exact definitions, but I guess now, right, the digital age, the communication age. Um, and it's just been, it's been very rapid and people are not quite um, accustomed or evolved for it. Like it's very, well, it can be, it can be very overwhelming and addictive in so many ways. We get addicted to convenience, to entertainment, to quick dopamine and you're right. It takes it. All it takes is self control to not be at the whim of the phone. We'll say, but that's harder than it sounds for a lot of folks. Well, it's, it's difficult for a number of reasons. Uh, I mean, there's the, the nature of screens, the player piano is like an interesting, like I, I haven't read that book. Vonnegut, right? But if I consider like the artifact of the player piano is something upon which to meditate, where you have mm -hmm. a piece that produces music without human involvement automatically. It's, it's emblematic of, you know, this process of surrender, 
to systematic process. Like you no longer need the pianist, right? You can look at how that foreshadows, anticipates the present situation where you have <clears throat> um, these software modalities like most recently chat gpt is getting lots of buzz but that's just kind of like the software du jour the point is that all of these technologies are giving away actual human creativity right as a writer it's a kind of obscene really that you are going to employ a machine to uh, manufacture uh, i don't even like using the word manufacture to to, to synthesize uh, a set of words that you will then integrate into your writing but what ends up happening is that you become captured by the machine because you'll end up accommodating your own composition so as that it dovetails more simply or more smoothly with the underlying underlying stylistics of the machine's algorithm. Uh, so then you don't longer need an author. In other words, everything which we have conceived as culture artistically is in principle going to then be manufactured. I don't want to use that word again because the reason I don't want to use the word manufacture. I think it's a fair word. It's fair, but like it's etymology, it's etymology is like that you're making it by hand. So there's no, this, no, no, not necessarily. But you um, have this like rudeness in the concrete. Um, that so, it's, it's like an aesthetic uh, reticence on my part because I don't want to give the machine any credit more than it. I, you know, um, but the, but it it synthesizes the, it it regurgitates it, it regurgitates output. Yeah, and yeah. and 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 the, the illusion arises that we will no longer need people to have culture uh, because the machines will create the culture for us. Mm. And uh, actually, I'm only arriving at that conclusion in this very moment, but that's the logical outcome of this uh, of these iterations. This is actually also. The argument of Jacques Leroux in the technological society is that the, the, the technological mentality is consummated in the elimination of the human because the, the principle is one of absolute efficiency. And right. an aspect of the human is that we are not absolutely efficient. And that's a good thing because vital life process resists the entropic entropy which means that it has a, a joie de vivre and adventure and energy to it that can't be contained by something which is just uh, routinized by technicized by the the softwares right mm -hmm. of course the other side of the equation is that you can't throw the baby out with the bathwater. You have to come to some sort of relationship with technologies. Um, so that's, it's, it's, it's an important distinction between singular technology, singular machines. 
and the technological mentality that wants to subsume everything we do under a logic of problem solution. Uh, I don't know if this is helpful. I, I feel like I should. No, 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 no. I, 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 I can, I can interject in that. Um, the player piano is a really cool metaphor because it kind of summarizes almost like our technology up to even this point in that it's a recording of sorts that mimics the work of a person, but on a mass scale, right? So there with the player piano, like there at one point was a person who sat down at the keys and recorded that initial scroll right and that scroll would be reproduced and run through the mechanical device to reproduce it as if a ghost pianist was sitting there plucking at the keys you know the keys would actually move up and down and in the in the novel there the the, the character you kind of follow at least initially is working as an engineer in a large scale you know mechanized factory in the early days of automation right and there's a section of one of the factory's buildings that is going kind of faulty right by way of entropy and it's a it's a series of lathes that are reproducing the movements of the most skilled lathe operator from 20 years before right the person who eventually was fired sort of for his own, you know, after, after performing the performance he was asked to perform, they had it on tape and they were able to reproduce it on a series of, you know, dozens of machines and produce a thousand times more units than he was able to do in a day. Right. And it's just sort of a, it's a, it's a metaphor for where we are now, where sort of like y'all talked about the cyber plantation, right? Right. And, and how like, so we got to a point where people were no, no longer needed for their physical work. So what do they do? They do service jobs. They do, um, you know, sales jobs, but like all the manufacturing is done by sort of automated systems for the you know majority and what what's sad about it and what the the novel kind of touches on like he runs into the craftsman who is now 80 some years old and it's sort of like the old man is dying at the same time as his automation and and there's no craftsman left so how do they how do they you know it's it's sort of this catch 22 of you replace people but then there's no people left to replace the machine when it breaks or to fix the machine because the, the knowledge is lost. Well, you know, what strikes me about that tableau is how it speaks to the challenge of generational division. So historically, and I think they've done a better job of preserving this facet of civilization than we have in the West. But historically, there is this concept of transmission, of 
apprenticeship, of parentage, of passing things on from one generation to the next. There, the, the, the process of learning is, is, is given a kind of sacred space in the casual rituals of the culture. I say casual rituals because it's just sort of how people got on with things. Um, but now, and, and um, we're at an impasse where the temptation is to see every every generation as at odds with the generation that came before it, and it's become. I mean, that that's fine as far as it goes. There's always going to be some tensions between parents and children and so forth, right? But historically, those tensions did not get in the way of uh, this relay of ways of life onto the young. And it feels like this is what has been lost because our mm -hmm. culture is being, has been reconstellated so that we're, we're, we're radically atomized. The family is considered to be almost vestigial and just sort of occasions the production of new spawn that will eventually be conditioned to, you know, serve for the reproduction of the economy. We have become the means, the instrument, and the the degradation. I mean, it's just kind of crazy me saying this because I'm hardly a traditionalist, right? But mm -hmm. but you have a corrosion of the familial, both in the sense of family biologically, but also in the sense of uh, sort of you know. Uh, how people just related with each other. Uh, mm -hmm. And, you know, Ivan Illich, it puts me in mind of, of Ivan Illich, and he makes some remarks in Tools for Conviviality and Elsewhere about and de-schooling society, um, about the invention of childhood. And that childhood, as we understand it, is, 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 a, is, is, a, is, a, is a construction of relatively recent provenance even into like the early 20th century, you know, you didn't have this demarcation between a child and an adult in the sense that we do. Mm -hmm. Children, especially if they're raised on a farm, just sort of grew into doing things somewhat organically, you know, right. so that by the time they were 12 or 13, they were effectively an adult, uh, you know, and that, it's most obvious with farming, but that's just because it's sort of clear because the accidents of that discipline, it's not just yeah. a farming thing. That's how all human skills got passed on through similar arrangements like apprenticeships, you know, Michelangelo yeah, or, had Or you go back, you go back as far as like hunter gatherer, you know, Right. history where it was it was essential to have skills to survive and you know as soon as a kid could walk they were learning things that were useful for survival and yeah i, I like the i mean i don't like it but the the sort of phrase um of the invention of childhood you know i call it like perpetual adolescence where we expect so little of our young adults. Like they're so incapable. They're so in, uh, you know, I don't know, incompetent. And it's, it's a shame because 
takes another 10 years before they learn how to be effective adults when it shouldn't be that long of a process. Um, I think the, the disease is sort of our addiction to convenience in a lot of ways and, and guidance and not, not having to, you know, not having to make decisions for ourselves too often. Right. As far as how am I going to educate my child? Well, that, that decision was made for me. I'll put them in the state facility and, you know, how am I going to get food? Well, I, you know, I'll have to get a job, you know, a steady job and I'll have to work 40 hours a week. You know, we've lost the ability to be craftsmen in a lot of ways, or just in general, just skilled humans. We, we traded in comfort and convenience for like skill and, and artisanship and ability and, you know, fill in the blank. But I think this is the dark side, excuse me, of technology where, as much as I love it for what it is, I get hot showers and I can talk to interesting people that live nowhere near me, but there's a dark side to it where I almost see most people are just so hooked, right? They're so hooked and they consent to it, right? The, um, the user agreement is kind of a funny thing to, to meditate on, right? You sign it without even reading it because it's a thousand fucking pages long and you're basically signing away your privacy your autonomy your responsibility and people do it without a second thought because well i'd rather just be able to use xyz computer you know program you know app whatever you want to call it and we then get to the point where we can't even imagine life without it which is why i think it it's kind of guided in some ways by dark dark forces it's kind of evil in that it's like any other sort of addictive drug um it creates sort of victims out of its users that's not to say they don't have a part in that happening right that they're not somewhat responsible but we we put these phones in in our kids hands at the age of you know five years old and let them play bubble crush and next thing you know, they're a gambling addict in Vegas, you know, <laughs> down on their luck and they're, you know, depressed and have no way out. I mean, it's no different, right? It's getting hooked on the dopamine of, of entertainment and convenience. So I, I do, I kind of advocate for people to seek out a more traditional life. I think it's really important to at least know where your food comes from, if not grow it yourself. Um, because if you don't, you know, you are a slave to their system. You have to buy from the grocery store. I I, I think if you're if you're so, dependent on the electric electric grid, you're you're kind of a slave to the electric company. And I now, you know, don't yeah. Yeah, go on. I was just gonna say, don't get me started on income tax. We are we are wow. essentially hamsters on the wheel of the great machine, charging its batteries. Um but we give consent. That's the problem. Well, we, we allow it. So like the, there's like a few points there that I'd like to raise. You know, mm. we do give consent, but I just want to note that in many respects, it's a coerced, it's coerced consent, right? Yeah. Because yeah. many people are in situations where they 
for all intents and purposes, have to agree to the use of this technology just to pay the mortgage, proverbially speaking, because we've been so immersed in it. So that actually, in a way, kind of negates the legal force of the contract. I'm not saying this would actually hold up in court, but contracts signed under coercive conditions are nullified in virtue of that in virtue of those coercive conditions, right? Mm-hmm. So this is not to say that I am saying, well, I had to do it. I'm just saying that it's a factor that needs to be considered in evaluating how to navigate from where we are now to where we want to go. Also, you have to, I think, examine the question of where do we want to go practically? And I hate being the guy to like raise this question, right? Because it doesn't seem like, maybe I'm wrong here. Uh, we can all just suddenly like move out of the city and get a homestead and so forth, right? We have to imagine ways of living that, for example, can be integrated into urban environments. And, uh, you know, it doesn't seem like we have to forsake altogether the the benefits of certain scales of organization, right? Um, it's, it's certain it's, certain conveniences, certain um, right. efficiencies. No, I I agree. Some technology like is very sewer useful. Systems, for example. Right. 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 Um, it's, I don't know, like a lot of times I'll start and look into something. Uh, and then when you like get into it, when you actually get into it, it's kind of crazy what unfolds, right? Like I haven't looked into, you know, how do, how does the city of Los Angeles provide all of its inhabitants with uh, potable water? And how right. do you, you know, navigate the question of moving beyond the aspects of that system, which which are uh, problematic to put it very politely. Well, it's, there's always the grand, like impossible to answer questions of sort of anarchistic thought play, right? How would we do this? How would we do that? It's, it's a matter of, to me, and I think, I think you touched on it with uh, Guido where it was, it's kind of the, the miracle of self-organization, right? And we've unfortunately lost that as a skill as well. Um, but it's a simple matter of creating local economies, like like intentionally creating local economies and make, making that a priority in that if we want to be sovereign, if we want to live free, we have to have our own support systems figured out. You know, that starts with food, that starts with water, that starts with the ability to, you know, provide basic needs, medical, you know, X, Y, Z. And so it is, it's, you can't solve any of these issues overnight, but what you do is if you, if you want that in your life, if you want that resiliency, if you want that community that economy that you can depend on uh, you have to just do it a little at a time. Right. And 
I don't see any other way out. I, right. you know, the and only I, way out is through. Right, right, exactly. I mean, and the reality is the need for action on local and municipal level. Mm-hmm. And so this is where you run into like, well, it's not very sexy. <laughs> no, right? it's really not. It's supporting yeah. your local farmer. It's right. meeting your neighbors. It's, you know, buying from the 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 local restaurant instead of the chain restaurant. It's as simple as that. Oh, it is that simple. Yeah, I mean, About- and I am I am a little bit of afraid of just the direction technology is going because I think we're gonna sort of go the way of. I mean, we already are like technocracy and, you know, you will read what we allow you to read. We, you know, you'll vote how we tell you to vote. It's, it's very much already a reality, um, which is, you know, me personally, I think it's sort of a spiritual thing to decide I am in any way I possibly can going to cease giving consent to the mega machine. I'm going to stop voting for the lesser of two evils i'm gonna you know fill in the blank i'm gonna support my local farm instead of some monsanto you know bill gates owned mega farm and i don't know it's like a spiritual battle of of how you spend your money how you spend your time how you spend your thoughts right absolutely I mean, it, it, it strikes me that, um, you know, and there's like an element of faith, like maybe that it, from some, from, from zan- some vantages that might seem just like futility, but it's really irrelevant actually, if you succeed, because the point is that you are making a statement about what human being is. Uh, now, I think we can draw hope from other quarters. One being that, the rhetoric notwithstanding, technology technocracy is not ultimately feasible. It leads to uh, situations like that outline, excuse me, outlined in uh, player piano. And also it's just so deeply inhuman and regressive that it will invite the creation of counter energies, right? Uh, oppression breeds resistance and existentially as human beings not all of us are just going to fold like a cheap suit with respect to these trajectories and really the key is in aggregating these small acts of defiance Uh, i was talking earlier um, with another friend nick bascom and one thing we can do when we're using a word processor is to just turn off the spell check and and turn off the grammar check like i mean that's interesting pretty like uh just to uh, allow allow it to be a bit more real a bit more human right obviously not chat gpt because there's mistakes exactly you 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 are or you could just go all the way and use a typewriter Um, right 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 but short of using a typewriter you no longer are constantly acquiescing or, you know, something that's really kind of radical is just not using um, GPS, right? Absolutely, you know yeah. Just actually learn how to get around where you live, okay, without relying on GPS. And let's, you know, I mean, I'll be honest, it's, it's pretty handy 
It's pretty mm-hmm. handy. I'm not going to pretend like it isn't. Okay. If your phone's dead, how are you going to get home if you really don't know how to get around town? Yeah. Right. And it also that has to do with the sense of actual concrete locality. Yeah. I, it's called, it's called sense of place. Um, a lot of people couldn't tell you their nearest Creek or their nearest Lake or the highest point within 20 miles, you know, even though in reality that can be useful and golly, let alone you ask somebody, even in like a clear day where the sun is visible, Hey, what direction is, you know, which way is North? A lot of people couldn't figure it out. And that's kind of, it's one of our most basic survival skills, like sense of place. Where am I? Where's water? Where's food? Where's my family? I almost don't want to use the word survival because Mm. that sort of suggests like a desperation. You're in well, maybe we call it like a, a psychological need. Then it is a need, right? Yeah. You know, to me, it's just being in relationship with the actual world around you, like that, right. the concrete, right? So, mm-hmm. so like, I mean, I live in an urban environment. I'm kind of an urban creature, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, it's it's distressing, right? That even the urban is sort of the reliance on these sort of technologies. Like it's really, it's kind of crazy. It's like, you don't actually live in real space anymore. You live yeah. in a virtual space of, and, and the real space is an occasion to navigate the virtual space. It's, 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 it's nuts. It's nuts. Um, it, uh, so, I mean, I guess, what you really come down to is just saying no a more and more and more as far as possible. Mm-hmm. Um, and but then like, you know, you have to come into some kind of relationship with the machine. Um, so well, like, I mean, I, I, I was, was, was going <laughs> to say, I, you know, I enjoyed sort of the word play that was going on in your interview where, um, he was talking about how even the, the terminology we use, right. If we're going back to this idea of like the cyber plantation, like turning us into sort of just, um, workers who, who feed the, feed the beast with our digital dollars in, in the form of taxation and general like production, um, this, this idea of, the the language that gets used right like it's a server farm they they call them like you know manufacturing plants like you know it's it's just kind of funny how we can't really escape the natural language of of production but we're separating ourselves from it in many ways or at least you know i don't know if i'm making a whole lot of sense but again it's kind of like that's yeah leading towards it's, a, it's an illusion leading, leading towards like like when when do we lose the ability to be human right to be sort of naturally human the whole transhumanism movement is just scary yes it is now at the outset i mean i'm gonna have a guy on my show here in a few weeks uh not to set it up but i met him recently and he's a exponent of this 
transhumanist position. Um, and his view is that this doesn't direct connectly to what we're saying, but it, I mean, it all hangs together ultimately. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, Well, just to finish the point, his position is that aging is a disease. I think I mentioned that I met you, this guy yesterday. That aging right. is a disease that needs to be cured and that it's a conceit to uh, pretend it's an inevitability or to pretend that death is an inevitability, that with adequate technical intervention, we can live in perpetuity. I met a gal the other day who said, my husband is a scientist. He's going to keep our dogs alive forever. I said, you're out of your damn mind. (laughs) You know? Yeah. It's, 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 uh, this connects to like the, to, to, to spiritual questions in a very real way, because in a sense, the spiritual is also intimately concerned with the question of our own mortality and how we're going to relate to that mortality. Um, but it also connects to the, the issue of the magical and its relationship to the technological and the mm-hmm. occult, mm-hmm. right? Um, the drawback to like the beginning and what is, uh, what is being conjured, if you like, with the proliferation of these technologies, uh, I was going to say, I know you listened to our WTF forum recently, and we we kind of got into the occult stuff and whether or not to take it seriously. We were talking about this place called Center of the Earth and uh, or Center of the World. And I said, I don't think I would want to walk on those grounds. I get a very like sinister vibe as far as the layout, the symbology, symbolism, whatever you, you know all of the different structures and the way they were laid out. And I'm just, again, like I wouldn't have said that maybe a handful of years ago. I wasn't concerned with sort of whether or not there were evil places on earth. Right. Despite all of the ghost stories and haunted houses and whatever, I didn't take it too seriously, but anymore I kind of do. And, uh, I don't know. You got to wonder if, if just the proliferation of information is, is sort of dangerous in its own right, where people seek out excuses to no longer have faith, you know, via knowledge, right. Being able to eat from the tree of knowledge every single day and try to like order our world instead of sort of admitting that in some ways we are, (laughs) you know, we're helpless to some degree and, and faith in God being like cast aside as an archaic, um, idea. Like we have the technology, we no longer need God. That, I mean, I think a useful distinction there would be the, between the proliferation of information and the proliferation of knowledge, right? Because information is undisciplined. It's, it's data. And it's not bound by a sense of context. So that it is um, very amenable to abuse. 
whereas knowledge or the dignity of the term knowledge implies a kind of discipline, a sense of context, a sense of the appropriate usage of what is being learned or apprehended by the, the, the student, as it were. But that is sort of a cultural formation, right? You can, it, it might even be advantageous to elucidate what we mean by the word information, right? The word information, I think, co-arises with certain developments in communication theory, even in the early 20th century. And it's, it's the, uh, you can measure the amount of information in a message vis-a-vis -vis the extent to which that message is amenable to digital translation. That's what bits and bytes and kilobytes and terabytes and all that, that is all, those are all measures of information, which is an analysis of the degree to which a, a, a message, and here by a message, we just really mean a series of discrete symbols like letters, doesn't have to be letters, it could be sounds, or graphics, right? Okay, into a format which is mathematizable and then relayable across a channel, whether that channel is noisy or noiseless, right? That's where, so when you look at the actual concept of information, what you're dealing with is mere formatting. It's a formatting question, it's an engineering question, and it is indifferent to the content of the message. Uh, so the, the fact that we have sort of given the notion of information so much weight in our culture is consistent with the, that this culture has also forgotten the importance of knowledge as opposed, and, and, and content as opposed to mere form. I, I say that because, um, you know, because I feel like we have to be disciplined uh, it's, and the problem isn't even really the proliferation of information per se, it's that it's proliferated in a way which makes it very difficult for anyone to reasonably use it. Um, like in the sense that they're being reasonable, that they're using their reason, their rational faculties. But you're also touching on another thing and that is that the secular universe in which we live doesn't want to give space for something transcendent. Doesn't even have to be a god or gods per se, but just an acknowledgement that there is something about reality that exceeds our capacity. Man's reach exceeds his grasp, right? You know, um, and integrating that into how we engage the process of life itself see there i mean that's really it right because if you try to understand everything in your life just as a problem to be solved you're going to be an absolutely miserable person okay mm -hmm. and you're probably going to make things miserable for people around you as well uh real like living has to assimilate the reality of mystery into the decisions that we make along the way yeah i feel like the again the player piano is like a really good metaphor because the sound might be 
the same more or less as the original performer who who recorded his finger movements but just because you can replay that sound over and over again doesn't mean there's soul to it the way there was when the person at first played the keys and if you never you know if, if say you make the job of the piano player s- somewhat obsolete you lose all kinds of potential for improvisation and and adaptation and new sounds and new songs and new creativity um i don't know like i again i think the simple solution to this spiritual battle is to is to reintroduce community into the equation right and this is why I think there's sort of a demonic force at play in in that it seems like there is an active um, attempt to separate people currently, right? To divide us, to make us helpless, to destroy the community, destroy the family, uh, destroy any semblance of sort of our typical biological social structure right um to turn us into it's so sad but like to to break us down into lonely little individuals only to assimilate us into some idea of a grand you know collective and you're serving the 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 greater population while losing any kind of real world connection you know Jesus said, love thy neighbor, right? I think the word neighbor is a good one. It's it's right there. It's the person across the street. I, you know, it's really shameful. Um, I go back and forth on how I feel about sort of suburbia, having grown up in it, um, where it almost feels like an ant colony, right? The patterns <laughs> of it, the patterns of it all. Right. The right. Sure. We all live in a hive. Right? That's why I was very interested in that idea of insectification, right? Insectification. That was in one of your interviews where, yeah, we are being reduced in some ways to behaving like uh, a colony of insects as opposed to what we should be, which is in essence, a pack animal. You know, I resent the idea of being a herd animal. I think a pack is a better description, right? When you have a a group of chimpanzees, you know, I'm not sure what they call it exactly, but it feels more like a pack than a herd. And the herd is herded. Right. Right. Um, The the notion of the pack suggests a kind of initiative. Um, Well, in a a natural, a natural organization, a self-organization, um, you know, I think a lot of people have a misconception about what like alpha male means. It's not necessarily the strongest. It's typically in a in a wolf pack. And I, you know, this is from things I've read, things I've heard, take it or leave it. You take it with a grain of salt. I'm not the expert, but I understand that in a wolf pack, it's generally the most reciprocal that is in charge like the 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 male who 
tends and look, you know, tends is maybe not the right word, but looks after and like shows affection for the majority of his pack, but will still apply discipline or what ha- what have you. But apparently there's been some studies into like, you know, the alpha male spends more time grooming his fellow like pack members than he does punishing them, which is kind of counter to what we're sort of taught in, in popular culture. And so it's not about being the brawniest or the meanest or the most powerful. It's often more about cooperation. I think this is um, people have this idea of nature being, what do they say? You know, survival of the fittest, like (coughs) the law of tooth and claw. And that's certainly a part of it, but there's way more cooperation in nature than people tend to believe. And so again, going back to like the spiritual battle at hand, if the, if the forces of evil are trying to separate us, the only thing we can do is come together. Right. And I think, um, online communities help, but really without physical community in your immediate vicinity, it's, it's only halfway there. If that, if that, yeah, I I think it, it it's it's uh, it's useful. Mm-hmm. I uh, I mean, sometimes the analogies of nature are useful, but uh, you know, I, I think it's also important to remember that we are not wolves, and we're not even chimpanzees. We're human beings, and there are ways of relationship which are appropriate to us as human beings that are differential from other members of the animal kingdom, uh, which gives us a place of incredible significance so far as the, the broader ecostructure goes. Now, you see, you have to embrace that significance with a sense of humility rather than arrogance or a presupposition that the, the objective is to dominate. Um, this, I think, is an attitude of historically relatively recent um, emergence, right? This is basically the attitude of modernity, uh, that science uh, shall give us the tools to become, to, to quote, Rene Descartes, lords and masters over nature. Um, I guess I don't know uh, where to go from here in the conversation. I was thinking a few conversational paragraphs ago about, well, I mean, you can sort of translate it into, uh, well, I'm not really certain. There are things I could say, but I, I want to like make certain that I'm, living in the integrity of the speech, um, it would be very easy, like, for example, to segue and then levy a critique of the elite at this moment. Uh, but well, I was thinking uh, if I can, uh, if I can say, I was thinking when you were talking earlier where, um, yeah, sort of like we're not wolves. Right. And the question of hierarchy and power comes to mind and it's why I'm attracted to sort of anarchistic thinking in that um, 
it makes me very uncomfortable to be in a position of power over anyone else. And it makes me twice as uncomfortable probably to be in a sort of subjugated position where someone has power over me, you know, and it makes me think about, you know, I'm just, I'm, I'm a, I'm a believer in sort of cooperation. Like I said, I think humans are the most cooperative species. It's our greatest asset. And, um, when it comes to cooperation and like how to sort of get shit done, the natural sort of maybe, maybe not, I don't know. The easy solution is to sort of let somebody be in charge. It's, it's harder to, to be in sort of a more ambiguous, like power structure. And it makes me wonder if like, again, like boiling down our, our basic psychology, is there not a need for some level of, of like, leadership well the the thing about anarchism mm-hmm. right is it wants to assert that hierarchy is beneath our dignity that we have a capacity as human beings to respond to the situation at hand in an appropriate manner that is not deformed by our excessively narrow self-interest, right? Hierarchy apologizes it for itself as an unpleasantness, which is necessary to counter the frailty of our nature and our inclination to behave, or so it will assert, in unruly and harmful fashions, right? Now, there's a, this is the this is the this is the the catch twenty two of it, right? This is why it's so hard to get out of the cycle. Because guess what happens when you put people in a, in a hierarchy and you constrain them, they're inclined to ultimately become unruly. Yeah, unruly. yeah, yeah. So, so then and- it sort of ends up as a, like this self justifying uh, dialectic, right? The more laws, the more criminals, that kind of a thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the the second main character in Player Piano is this like old friend of the, you know, of the main character who has basically quit his job and like just cast aside like all shackles of society is like a total renegade, right? Has gone sort of feral, as feral as any human could go. And he's kind of tugging at the emotions of his friend who's still very much in the matrix. Let's say, you know, he's part of sort of the managerial class. He's, he's in the upper echelon of the corporation and he's seen it go from being a, you know, uh, a business with people working for it to a business with machines doing most of the work and he's having you know a debate in his own mind about the nature of reality and what he's doing and how he's living and whether or not it's real or authentic or or good and his friend kind of comes along and is trying to prod him into going a little bit feral 
And that's kind of a simplistic way of describing it. But, you know, the the sh- the subtle shift from sheep to wolf, if you will, if there if there is such a thing with people to be a bit of a, you know, how how'd you describe it or how'd your um, the guy you interviewed describe it? Uh, becoming a cyber rebel, I think, is the, uh, the choice of rebel, words. I think is what Te- you techno use. rebel. I like right. it. Right, and I think yeah. he got that term from uh, Tuffler, T O E F L E R, who is an author who wrote a lot about technology. Though I haven't read it, it's certainly a concept which I think I need to uh, investigate more. Right, because we have to find some kind of relationship with these phenomena. We can't just jettison them because uh frankly that there that would you have to grant that that would if we were to do it in an abrupt fashion also create all kinds of harm which are inconsistent with what we want to actually achieve right um and then sort of it's like inconvenient but we have to acknowledge don't we that power is part of our lives, right? And mm-hmm. and like I have to make decisions of power in connection with you know my niece and nephew who are two years old and eight right. and two and nine respectfully, right? Or two and eight going on nine, right? You know if they're going to do things and sometimes, you know, like my nephew, I have to sort of physically restrain him. That that's an exercise of power. Right. So, um, or it's actually as a use of force is what it is. And, uh, but then you can think of more adult situations where you, the, the resort isn't necessarily to force per se, but yeah, you, know, you as a business owner, are in a power relationship with all your clients. Yes. Right. To some, to some degree. Right. And I just, you got to make that conscious so that you don't fall prey to it. And so the, 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 yeah. the challenge is our critiques of power cannot allow us to evade our responsibilities. We have to learn. I don't know. I don't know. It's a real problem, right? It's a real mm-hmm. problem. Um, and I don't have the answer to it. Well, in terms of, in terms of like the client, um, contractor relationship, um, you could just say, I suppose service provider, but there is always a temptation to give up your own power for the sake of the, the paycheck. And, um, I've just kind of lost my patience with doing that, frankly. So there have been a couple of instances this, this season where I kind of stood up for myself with clients. Um, I won't get real detailed, but in essence, one of them like dug up everything and replanted it immediately after I put it all in the ground and basically killed everything in the process. And I kind of was just honest with her and said, you know, you shouldn't have done that. Like this isn't going to work if there's not some trust. Like I put everything in their proper place. And, uh, you know, she's like, just kind of OCD and wanted, wanted things to be in certain place. I don't know, but I, I didn't let her walk all over me. She said like, well, you know, the customer's always right. And I'm like, well, if you think you can do it better than me, be my guest, you know? And I had to fire another client. She kind of pouted and walked away, but I hope she heard what I said, where it's like, 
you're paying me to do this right. And I can't help you if you mess with it too much. Um, and I'm not just trying to bitch and moan, but it is, it's a matter of sort of at a certain point, self-respect. And this other person that I fired as a client, they were just talking to me in a very, what I found to be disrespectful way, just rude. And I said, look, thanks. You know, I built their garden. I planted their garden, but I gave them their money back for the membership that I had signed them up for just because I didn't want to deal with it. I'm like, I don't deserve to be talked to in this tone. And so there is something to be said for like going a little wild or just like having your own sense of self-respect in this world where when you look around and you see the way that people are trying to subjugate you for your own dignity, for your own self-respect, like you have to stick up for yourself and find a better way to live, right? A more authentic way to live, a less addicted way to live, you know, get out of the system as much as possible. And going back to maybe sort of the spiritual side of things, the occult and, and, and I I'm curious where you're at as far as like, are you ascribed to any certain religious tradition in any way? Or, you know, this idea of like spiritual versus religious. That's, I mean, I know that's kind of open-ended, but um, to me, I'm very much inclined to go back to my roots as a, as a Christian, but I was raised in sort of the cookie cutter, like McDonald's version of Christianity. And that doesn't necessarily appeal. Um, so I'm curious what you, where you're at, if you're willing to say. I think that the every major religious tradition has provided us with ways of relating to the sacred that are potentially advantageous, mm. uh, but they're not the same ways so that they can be mutually enriching. So with respect to radical Christianity, there's like a, there's a distinction between prophetic Christianity and Constantinian Christianity, Christianity which has been appropriated by the empire and which serves the, the serves Caesar as it were, right? Um, uh, I think that prophetic Christianity has given us a sense of the significance of the individual and the personal, which is somewhat uniquely powerful through the notion of God's incarnation. On the other hand, I uh, think that this is a other example, Buddhism through its various contemplative practices puts us in touch with facets of human experience which can be truly freeing they can buddhism can give you a, a capacity to escape the lies that you tell yourself right um and 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 so on right uh I mean, so what is consistent is that there is a domain, a threshold of existence, a transcendent ground or space, which the access to which is intimately connected with the realization of meaning. And 
the effective access of that space is predicated on a kind of surrender for Islam, if you will, because that's what Islam means, incidentally, is surrender. Um, the yearning is to control. The yearning is not to surrender. The, 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 the temptation is to control. And the occult or occult orientations derive, I think, from uh, exactly the indulgence of that yearning for control and manipulation. And there's a kind of paradox which arises with the personality that is fixated on the notion of control. The, mm -hmm. the, the, the absolute authoritarian is also paradoxically inclined to a remarkable servility, even a slavishness. And you can see this operate concretely in relatively rigid command structures where someone on one level of the command structure will exhibit just a brutally despotic orientation to the people beneath them, but mm -hmm. when confronted with their superiors is utterly supplicant, utterly docile, right? So my view of the matter, as far as elite strata go, is that these people are the majority of them who occupy the so-called commanding heights are generally personalities of incredibly authoritarian disposition mm -hmm. and thus are um, liable to the same sort of paradoxical duality. Now, what I think yeah. happens is that their craving for power is such that they are willing to surrender to something that is other than human in order to expand their power. And right, I right. basically think that that's what happens. That Sort of, that, sort of making, the, making the deal with the devil. That's right? precisely like, and, and here I'm being, I'm not just using that as a metaphor, okay? Mm -hmm. I, I think that many uh, people on, in, I mean, who knows, right? Okay, I don't know that. That's just my mm -hmm. opinion. That's my No, opinion. I agree. Um, it goes back I, to what I was- in a certain arrow, it doesn't really matter that much, actually, because the, the solution is to just uh, live in your own world. Like, I don't mean that. I don't mean like that solipsistically. Like, I mean, you know, it's your neighborhood. It's your, you know, neighbors. You establish relationships with them. And, you know, that's where you're going to really effectively combat through quiet acts of heroism. The, the agendas from on high. But if you ask the, on high in quotations, right? But if you ask my opinion that the, I think that they do consort with energies of a demonic character, you know, there's different mythologies, you know, who knows what the actual reality of these energies are. I think that mythologies variously give names to these phenomena, but if they exist, be, 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 be a, behind a veil so that we can only have a vague sense of their reality. And thus we have to be very circumspect about being 
too concrete, like, oh, that's the devil, or that's the Armand, sure, or that's sure, the Mephistorian. Sure. You can come up with these demonologies and so forth. And but you know, it's it's almost besides the point. The real point is kindness and love. Right, right, right. right. Kindness, almost. love, and surrender to that the greater reality of the universe will have your back if you like. <laughs> when you yeah. live in accord with those principles. Does that answer say, your question? It's sort of, yeah. Well, certainly. Um, I was going to say like this, this weird, like paradoxical nature of, of so many things, right? I've been very interested in the idea of duality for a long time, sort of everything having its equal and opposite um, two sides, same coin. There's sort of inextricable interconnectedness. Um, with so many things, but I almost think part of the challenge is to transcend that like dualistic nature and like get to like a more pure nature. And I'm not sure if this will make total sense the way I'm saying it, but you know, you, you talked about in one of your interviews about sort of the weird connection between the, the seeking out of eternal life, right? The transhumanist, uh impulse and how it so often is held by people who are more than willing to kill to get what they want right sort of the death cult in search of eternal life which is ironic on its face right it's paradoxical eternal life but willing to murder um I think you know, I don't ascribe to the whole like adrenochrome um, <laughs> fucking conspiracy theory, but I think there's something to be said for the again, like it's metaphorical, but the, 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 the vampire cannot come into your home uninvited. That's right? true. I mean, I find that most metaphors end up mapping to a concrete reality as well. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But the, takes me to the point of sort of spiritual consent. Um, you may consent unwittingly to the eventual consequences, but without some sort of like spiritual guidepost, uh, you're more susceptible to consenting to things that are against your best interests. If that makes sense. Like I, I think we have to be very careful what we spiritually consent to again, going back to voting and things like that. I I'm not against voting as a whole, but I think it's a, it's, it's cheap and wrong to vote for somebody you don't actually believe in simply because they are the lesser of two evils. Right. Give me someone worth voting for and I'll vote. Right. To be silent. Right. I would prefer to that be silent than to give, consent and and spiritual backing you know energetic sort of support to someone who is going to do evil with that right right i mean that's that but you see uh, and i agree it's a bit it, it also also points to, to to why you need a more sort of delegate as opposed to representative democracy mm. right where the, the framework of representation necessarily gives rise to these to these dilemmas. In a delegate framework, 
they would still recur. There's nothing perfect, right? But uh, there's, this is a kind of a technical point, right? But the liability of giving away your power to a personality who is a delegate is not as great as a representative because the delegate is compelled to a very narrow range of options, right? They're supposed to carry out relatively specific instructions. There's still always space for discretion and the abuse of discretion, but it's just not as pronounced as it is under the current system where the framework of representation more or less is employed as a buffer against uh, an underlying uh, oligarchy. So the issue of hierarchy is at play, right? But I, I think there's a fine line between like natural uh, fluid hierarchy and like a bureaucracy, right? Talking about the whole impulse to, <clears throat> to be a tyrant to those beneath you and a slave to those above you. That would not exist in a natural fluid kind of hierarchy where leaders are chosen based on competence and and status can be lost very, very easily, right? You catch my drift. Um, you know, yeah, the, I mean, the, the greater like hypothetical of say we manage to sort of be able and willing, you know, with the political will in our local right. communities to restructure things. How would we restructure? I agree that like, I think what I'm hearing about the delegate versus the representative is it's easier to keep the delegate on, on point, on track with what people actually want. They're easier to get rid of perhaps. Well, the right? difference like, is that, yeah, the representative is theoretically supposed to exercise his vote in the best interest of his constituency but he determines what the best interest of his constituency is mm -hmm. okay whereas the, the theoretically the delegate is also tasked with servicing the best interest of their constituency but they are not they're beholden to the common they, they will. do not yeah okay and the common will is not just that they were elected Right, right, you know, right. And that, as I understand the model, differentially, it's it's that, kind of semantics, but right, right. Um, well, it's not just uh, semantics. It's like when you delegate, you give someone specific directions. To I see. A, fair, a given fair. task, right? Like yeah. if there's going to be a vote on a specific piece of legislation, and you send the delegate to cast the vote, the delegate. Mm -hmm casts what you tell them to cast not right. what they think should be cast right so right. it's uh, the delegate is really a kind of vicar or he's standing in vicariously for the voice of their constituency whereas a representative you have faith that the representative will exercise their discretion without having to consult his constituents he can even vote against what the constituency thinks is their best interest if he uh, esteems that they are deluded in their orientation. Right. Yeah. So yeah at, times, at times I make fun of democracy because it's become a farce in our current sort of form of it. Um, but local small-scale democracy is 
certainly like practical and logical. I just don't know how far out, you know, what I would really hope for is a, and I think, I think your guests said it well, like sort of a federation of autonomous sovereign sort of city states. Right. Right. And that's sort of like the best bet. Yeah. Uh, sort of dramatic decentralization. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, yeah, it, I don't have a whole lot of other thoughts. It's kind of like, it's I just think- funny. I think all this stuff is super connected, sort of technology, magic, if you will, spiritual mm-hmm. magic and, and so govern and be- governance. Yeah. Like a concluding point mm-hmm. that I would, and then maybe you can respond and then we'll wrap it there. And mm-hmm. that is uh, to what extent does technology conduce to greater democracy? And uh, it's in as much as, uh, at least the way it's unfolded, in as much as it decenters us, it places us at a distance from where we are concretely. Technology is almost anti-democratic. If democracy is something which is to be really exemplified on a more or less local level, extending to the global through sort of loose federations or confederations, then then we have to really exhibit far more circumspection about using that technology. you can think of voting, even voting machines serve mm-hmm. this, right? Mm-hmm. It's digital as opposed to actual concrete ballots. But well, and I, I think look- both have their limitations and their vulnerabilities. But I do think if we wanted truly like honest, unquestionably honest elections, like that technology does exist. It's it's called like uh, blockchain. I mean, this problem was solved where we have a way of confirming without a shadow of a doubt that something has not been counterfeited, that it is authentic, that it was either put in this, you know, digital jar or that digital jar, if you catch my drift, right? Yeah. If if we wanted to have direct, honest, technologically provable uh, elections, we could do that, but what we have now is such a puppet show and there's so much like tradition behind it that isn't going to happen. I think it only happens on like a very, very local level. If you can get enough, like I said, political will in a local community to kind of restructure the town council and to employ like better, more um, secure election technology in the form of, uncounterfeitable digital tokens um that's how it starts and it goes to you know your your guest was talking about how like the local mint is sort of the ultimate goal having a form of local currency that the the economy you know works within um it's 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 a tall order, but it is the only way to sort of strip those at the very, very top of the, the, the main levers of control that they have. If we stop using the U.S. dollar, if we start using other things. Well, I have to say. Um, I, I, you know, this is just something where I have to do more discernment, but. 
there's an ambiguity to blockchain and similar modalities. And again, I just need to do more learning about it. But my concern with anything that rises too far beyond the analog is that it demands a sort of technical um, facility that is going to be the province of only a few people. And uh, not necessarily. I mean, that's the interesting thing with like Bitcoin is it's very decentralized as far as if you run what's called a node. You know, it's kind of like you were talking about it on one of your episodes where right now we have massive server farms, we have internet yes. providers, but if we can start acting as our own server yeah, uh, uh, and, uh, and have Irvid, sort of... Right, Irvid is the... Sorry, go on. I was going to say have more sort of independent networks, more decentralized networks. Like that is kind of how Bitcoin already works and how blockchain was designed to work where... Thousands of computers are simultaneously confirming transactions. So it's, it's, it's an open ledger shared by a thousand different nodes yes. where every individual computer sees that the, the transaction occurred and it, so it, keeps, it keeps it basically trustless is the term they use where it's, like I said, just uncounterfeitable because it's so radically decentralized. Right. Everybody with a node is checking whether or not it's authentic or not. So if that makes sense. Exactly. And it's beyond my tech technological knowledge. Right. That's so just the basic mechanics, but yeah. I mean, it's just a different way of handling operating system questions and things like right. that. Um, and there are examples like Odyssey, Mm -hmm. runs like that and it's not just bitcoin it's not just bitcoin there's ethereum i mean it's how torrents it's how torrents used to work or and, i guess uh, still do orbit orbit i think mm -hmm. you might be interested in investing in that uh, investigating mm -hmm. that so so this is sort of ties into the technological rebel sort of thing and right one of the thing about the the technological rebellion is creating a new internet that isn't as amenable to the agendas of the power removing removing the bottlenecks of control the the power centers right taking back a little bit of power at a time until we have sort of i hate to use the word but like an equitable distribution of of technological power if that makes sense yeah the one thing that is requisite upon people who i think move to the use of these decentralized technologies mm -hmm. is uh, that they demand greater engagement right you know to really navigate bitcoin right or urban you have to take a kind of ownership and responsibility uh, for your relationship with the software that is at least in terms of initially the case uh, more demanding than that which is required for you to just turn on your laptop and jump onto google right right so yeah. it's also about inculcating in people a sense that they just have to in be willing to endure at least for a time a measure of inconvenience for a, for 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 a better for a better world in a better situation 
I think that's always the case. I mean, I guess it doesn't just, it, you know, like I it just, it, it, doesn't, cliche, I it doesn't happen all by itself. Like we, the, a better world is not just going to fall in our laps, right? If we look at the trends of our culture and society and government, it tends to trend in a, in a negative direction. So, you know, there needs to be an opposing force. There needs to be an equal and opposite reaction. We need, if, if things have become, you know, again, food is my main interest. I've learned about technology as a necessity uh, because I recognize the power of it. It's like podcasting is a great example of radical decentralization. Instead of us all listening to, excuse me, instead of us listening to CNN, we have a thousand different shows to choose from. Which, which are generally infinitely better quality than what you get on cable, right? They, they had a stranglehold on information and we, we broke it up from the ground up, from the grassroots. And that's only one, you know, that's, that's one sector of, of the economy. But like I said, food is critical. We need more local farms we need more farmers markets we need more backyard gardens you know i think about how joel or no um uh which one which one not jeff lawton one of the great permaculture bill i think it was the original bill mollison he was like one of the original permaculture guys kind of wrote the original books and he has a quote saying that like the most subversive radical thing you can do is grow food. And I would say he might be halfway correct, but I think maybe Jesus actually had it better where really the most radical thing you can do is just love your neighbor. And that maybe includes growing food so that you have food to share with your neighbor if they need it. Right. Everybody's got to eat. Everybody's got to drink clean water and if we can't help ourselves, we can't help nobody else. That's that's kind of my end all be all point for the most part. <laughs> I think that that, uh, that we can leave it there. Sure, sure, now, man. So um, I know because we could just start a whole new conversation there right at the end about food and yeah, you know, Bill that's Gates another purchased uh, all this land mm-hmm. and you bear. Mm-hmm. I mean, that happened about a year ago now or. Something like that, but you oh, it's been happening. It's been happening for a long time, uh, and you know, there should be a counterpoint. Like no one should own that kind of land, right? Mm-hmm, it's mm-hmm. not his land. Well, okay? frankly, it, do you own it if you can't defend it? I mean, that's my practical brain saying. Who knows what the future entails? But Bill I, Gates cannot feasibly defend all the farmland he has acquired. If people if people want to reacquire their ancestral lands, they may just have the opportunity to do so at some point. Well, I don't know about that's that. a whole nother topic too. It's a whole other thing right there, right? Yeah. yeah. So we're gonna just have to put that in, uh, for the next time, as it were. Put a put a pin uh, in it. Yep. For the time being, anyway. Yep. Michael. So thank you. Hey, and uh my pleasure. I, Thanks for and, having uh, me. Rock and roll. I'm going to put this up.
within the next day or so on my channel, probably pretty quickly and uh, send you the files and you're welcome to use them as you see fit. So right on all I need is the audio, but rock and roll. Awesome, well, man. I don't know if I could send them independently. I think I can, but either way, I'll get it to you. So, okay. All right. All cool. right. I'll talk to you soon. All right. Ciao Adios. for now. If you would like to donate to the Easy Peasy Podcast, please go to easypeasy.ittybitty.tips. Thanks for listening.